Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where, am I, going, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after... I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in his work. Believe me when I say that I am in his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Uh, I've titled this sermon... Encouragement from Jesus as the end draws near. If you've got your sermon outline there this morning with you, you'll, you'll keep track of where I'm up to. Not just to figure out when I end, but to so you know where I'm up to. And I think uh, the tone of this passage is, is some encouragement from Jesus to his, his disciples and the people who were first with him. And, and it's encouragement for us too. So as we uh, get ready to... Uh, look at this passage today in John 13, 31 to 14, 14. If you've got that ready, that's also good. Uh, we'll come in a word of prayer to the Lord now and think about this passage together. So let us pray. Our Lord, we thank you for uh, giving us your word, which encourages us in life. Uh, we thank you that we can spend this time this morning uh, thinking more deeply about it and, and how it relates to our lives today. Lord, help us to concentrate and help us to uh, grow in our faith in you. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, at the introduction there, you'll notice I've got the heading uh, Disillusionment. And uh, there's nothing quite like uh, losing hope in life, is there, and being disillusioned. And yet, on the other side of that coin, um, when people do have hope in life, they can seem to continue on a bit better and a bit stronger. I read a true story about the bombing of a United States um, warship called the USS Indianapolis. And uh, sadly, towards the uh, end of World War II, uh, that ship was torpedoed by the Japanese uh, in the middle of the Japan Sea. Sadly, as the ship went down, there were some 800 uh, sailors who were stranded, stranded in the sea, and they were left facing um, the sharks and the scorching sun. And according to the account that I read by an author called Ed Friedman, uh, he said although they knew it was to their advantage to stay together, uh, some of them didn't do that. Some of them swam away, uh, got separated, and either willingly or out of some kind of uh, madness, they gave themselves to the sharks. It's a, it sounds like a tragic situation. Well, this story um, puzzled Ed, uh, Ed Friedman, who was, who was reading about it, uh, and he was actually a counsellor, and he, he wondered uh, what had happened. Why would those men choose to do that, to, to leave the safety of the group uh, where their chances of survival were, were higher and to just swim off uh, and lower their chances of survival? Well, Ed was also a counsellor, and he... Uh, dealt with a client who was working through some health problems. This client had been making some very hard decisions to increase his dosage of of treatment, uh, to take long trips away each week to to get treated so that he had a higher chance of improving in his recovery. And so Ed, the counsellor, asked his client the, the same question. Why would those men go and do that? Why would they just leave the safety and swim away? And the client was apparently a simple guy who said in his own words, those guys swam away, they didn't have no future. Those guys who swam away, they didn't have no future. Now I think what he's saying is his assessment of the situation was that those people didn't have anything to live for when they were thinking about going back home. Whether the client was right or wrong, he was probably thinking about his situation. Uh, He had something to live for, and so he was upping his dose, making the trips. He had something to live for, and it gave him hope to continue on. Uh, But he felt that those people, they may have had nothing to live for, and so they didn't have any hope, and they were ready to give up. I was intrigued by that story, because as a Christian, I think uh, Jesus gives us hope, doesn't he? We have hope in a fallen world, even though there's many uh, difficulties and complexities in this uh, fallen age, this this difficult world, Jesus offers his followers hope. He lifts our spirits as we think about the future and he helps us to continue on in a fallen world. And I think that's the sort of thing he's encouraging his disciples to see uh, with his final words 
in this farewell discourse. And so we're encouraged to think about these things carefully and to listen to these words of encouragement from Jesus to his disciples as his time on earth draws near to the end. Now, the context for the the passage that we're looking at today, uh, I guess, can be traced back to chapter 13, where the time had come for Jesus to go. And that was the news that he gave to his disciples, uh, that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to be with his father, we read in 13 verse 1. And this section that we embark on today has been described as the farewell discourse. And we're well acquainted, aren't we, with uh, farewell discourses within the Bible because in uh, Genesis chapter 49, Jacob uh, farewells his son. Uh, The whole book of Deuteronomy is a farewell discourse, isn't it? It's Moses' final words to the Israelites uh, before he leaves them behind and they continue on in life without Moses as he dies outside the promised land on Mount Nebo. And likewise, Joshua and David, they also have farewell words after they're gone, for when they've gone as well. But here we have some farewell words from Jesus, uh, and the tone is a little different to the, those other people that I've mentioned, because Jesus knows that he's going to rise again, and he will see his people once more. And yet at the same time, it's still, uh, they've still got to go through that difficult time. His death and departure are the context for these words of encouragement. And so as uh, Jesus anticipates the end, he encourages his disciples to be known by their love. That's the first point that you'll see in my outline there. We pick that up in verses 31 to 35. He encourages his disciples to be known by their love after he's gone. Initially, Jesus begins speaking about uh, being glorified now that uh, Judas has gone out and it's night. Judas has gone out to notify the authorities and so the the machinery, if you like, is in place as he's ready to be handed over to the Romans ultimately. I'll pick that up in verse 31. When he was gone, that's a reference to Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Jesus uh, refers to himself as the Son of Man and that drives us back to uh, Daniel chapter 7 where the image of the Son of Man uh, approaches God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and is vindicated and is glorified. And in verse 32 at the end, there's a reference there how God will glorify him at once. And so Jesus is thinking in terms of the time that he's about to uh, suffer, be handed over, uh, to die and to rise again. This time of the crucifixion is also uh, considered by Jesus in John 17 a time of being glorified. And furthermore, the fact that Jesus is an obedient son, that he He serves his father faithfully. Uh, There's glory that goes to God through Jesus' obedience as well. In John chapter 17, later when Jesus prays, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you 
before the world began. And so there is glorification that's going to take place as Jesus goes to suffer, die and rise again. In verse 33, as Jesus anticipates the time of his glorification, he lets his disciples know that this is a path that he's got to go on alone. We'll pick that up in verse 33 if you're following along there. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so they're getting the brief, aren't they, that things are coming to an end rapidly. And before he goes, he teaches them about the legacy that he wants to leave. He wants them to be known as his disciples by their love. Now, we won't start singing that chorus now that many of us might have known from the perhaps the 1980s in scripture and song, you know. Uh, a new commandment I give unto you. I'll, we might get Benjamin to sing that a little later on, perhaps uh, morning too. Uh, but I'm going to read that verse to you from, uh, from the, just from the, the NIV. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, the disciples did know uh, about the idea that they they should love. They've known that from the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're reminded to uh, love the Lord God with all their heart, soul and mind and strength. And from Leviticus 19 verse 18, they knew they weren't to seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of their their people, but instead to love their neighbour as themselves. And so they are familiar with the idea that they should be loving. But I think the newness of this commandment is uh, connected to the standard of love that Jesus offers. He says, love as I have loved you. And a couple of weeks ago we saw that when Scott preached about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We see something of the love that he had to serve and the fact that Jesus willingly lays down his life. He shows a very high standard of love that we are called to follow. Now Christians are sometimes renowned for having a sign. Um, Our sign is not circumcision. Uh, Christians are baptised people. We're baptised in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes Christians also uh, wear a cross, don't they? That's, that can be something they, they might wear to say, look, I'm a Christian. Uh, these days, some might even wear tattoos with a cross. But here at this point uh, in the Bible, Jesus is saying the, the sign of being a Christian isn't, uh, it's not a tattoo. Uh, he's saying the sign that we're his disciples is we're known from our love. It's interesting, isn't it? Little children can even understand this idea, can't they? Uh, that they, they should love uh, their neighbour. And old and wise people uh, still find this a challenge to do consistently all the time, particularly to love their enemies. Now, as a church of imperfect people, uh, it's always going to be a challenge for us to love one another deeply from the heart, isn't it? And yet if we are people who are serious about seeking to love and serve the Lord, seeking to obey him, that's going to be um, part of our responsibility, to love uh, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. At quite a practical level, I think um, sometimes it's, it's easy to tell 
what the tone of love is like within a church. We can see what it's like sometimes when uh, there's too much distance between people, when people uh, don't want to talk to each other, uh, when there's a lack of friendship or if there's a lack of warmth, if people find that they, they can't uh, disagree with each other in a kind way, even over small things, if there's a tone in the place where people feel threatened or frightened from each other or bullies, then I'd say we can, we can pick that up, can't we? Uh, and so at a very practical level, I'd say uh, if that's the case, there'd be room for love to increase within a church. And it's interesting, even as we, we think about uh, the love within our church and congregation, whether there's, there's room for us to keep uh, improving in our warmth and love for one another as well. I always find it intriguing to uh, stand up here and preach about these things because I know uh, this is not all one way about the congregation attempting to you know, grow in its love. It's, it's about the preacher. And uh, I'm aware of my efforts to, to fail uh, at times to lead uh, by example and, and be loving. And it's my responsibility uh, to be guided by Jesus' words here also, uh, to be someone who is challenged to love uh, as he loved as well. So this is the challenge that we all have, isn't it? Uh, I don't think we'll ever perfectly tick the box that says, oh, good, well, we've, we've finished uh, doing that now, we've finished loving, we've loved like Jesus loved, we can, we can move on, something next. Uh, we're going to live with this challenge, aren't we? It's like living with unanswered questions. There's lots of questions we'll live with that are unanswered. Well, we're going to live with this challenge to love one another deeply from the heart, and that is the life that God has called each one of us to. That's that's our challenge together. Well, as Jesus anticipates the end, he encourages his people with the knowledge that he is in control That's what we see in the second point. Jesus knows the end. We see that he knows the end because he's already predicted uh, Judas' betrayal and now he predicts something else. Let's have a look at that. I'll pick it up in verse 36 to 38. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, I find these verses uh, very interesting. Is Peter confused about what Jesus is talking about Lord where are you going he says he doesn't seem to know where Jesus is going and I'm wondering whether he's anticipating a different kind of end still for Jesus one that results in the enthronement of uh, splendor for an, an earthly and triumphant king I wonder if that's what he's 
still got in mind. But this is a stressful situation that uh, Jesus is alluding his disciples to, saying he won't be with them any longer. And perhaps Peter's trying to be uh, stronger and more together, more with it, more in control of his life than he really is. That's probably what's going on here. Whatever his expectations, he speaks with a zeal and a confidence of someone who seems to think he's in uh, full control of his life and his emotions. In verse 37, he says in a confident way, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus challenges these strong words. In verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It wasn't Peter's time to lay down his life, although that would happen some 30 years later. Instead, faced with uh, an angry and a hostile mob, a frightening group with clubs and cudgels, Peter would, in fact, deny Jesus. But Jesus was in control. He would still lay down his life for Peter and his friends. And so we see here that Jesus is in control. He knows the end. And he's willing to bring about God's plans and purposes for our salvation. He's willing to lay down his life for us, even where Peter was confident he would do the same. Well, what can we learn from this challenge to Peter? Uh, in our times of zeal for the Lord, in, in our times of uh, confidence as Christians, there might be a little bit of Peter in us. But when uh, pressed, Peter still seemed to be frail and human. But Jesus encourages us to, to not be uh, confident in, our, in ourselves, but to be confident in him. He's the one who knows the end. He's in control of things and he's the one who brings us hope because he is in control. But having said that, even as uh, frail people, uh, we're still called to follow Jesus and to lay down our lives. He says, if, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So even uh, frail, frightened people such as ourselves, we're still called uh, to life by following Jesus and that's our calling, to say no to self and to be prepared to stand with Jesus and to faithfully follow the one who faithfully went to the cross on our behalf. Well, as Jesus anticipates the end, he encourages his people with life and hope beyond the grave. And there is great comfort as Jesus prepares for his people. That's something we see in the next few verses that you might have heard um, read out during a funeral service. I'll pick it up in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Well, in verse 14, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, but I'm wondering why he says that. Uh, Isn't it because this is a a very strained time? It's a very difficult time. It's a catastrophe because the disciples have been with Jesus for some time now and he's about to leave them. Well, Jesus doesn't deny the uh, seriousness of the situation that they're working through, but he points them to hope beyond this current crisis. And what is that hope? Well, the hope is that they, can, uh, they trust in God and that they can trust in Jesus. They can trust that he's going to prepare a place for them. And they can trust the fact that there will be room for all of them in his father's house. In summary, we could say after this difficult time, Jesus effectively says, you're going to be reunited with me and you will be with God. Jesus wants his disciples to be comforted in the face of death in the knowledge that they'll be in the presence of God. That's the good news. That's the hope that he wants to lay on their consciences. And the reference to coming back to take them to be with him uh, is, is may well be a reference to the second coming. But the thought uppermost in mind here is that ultimately there's comfort in knowing that they'll be with the Lord in the end. And so we have uh, also, as disciples of Jesus, we've got a, a foundation for our hope in the face of death. As I said, you might have heard this passage spoken about uh, during funerals. I've certainly been at a, a funeral of a, a lady who was the mother of three young kids when she died. And she took a great deal of comfort uh, from this passage as she was winding down, ready to leave her family behind. And so as we contemplate uh, these words, they're very relevant for each one of us also, as we know uh, that one day uh, we will die too, and these words will we'll come back to uh, as, we, as we move towards that time. In the face of our certain death, the message for us too is not to let our hearts to be troubled, uh, but to trust in Jesus, in the knowledge that he's prepared a place for his people and that there's plenty of room there. Sometimes I, I worry as I think about the future and I wonder with all of my kids, if they all have families, uh, when they come back to stay with me, whether there's going to be enough room. Well, in terms of the future being uh, with the Lord, uh, there's not going to be that kind of problem. Jesus is saying we don't have to worry that there's not going to be enough room for us all. There are many rooms uh, in his father's house. So They don't have to panic about that kind of thing. So there's great comfort as Jesus prepares for his people at the end. And that's some of what he wants to leave them with in this farewell discourse. Well, as Jesus anticipates the end, he also reinforces the truth that there's only one way to God. Uh, He's the way, the truth and life. We can see that in uh, John chapter 14, verse 5 to 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Well, Thomas sounds like he's thinking in fairly earthly and concrete terms. Uh, We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It's almost like a bushwalking trip, isn't it? Where's the destination? So we don't know which track to go down. But the answer that Jesus gives is multifaceted. He speaks about going to the Father as the destination. And if the Father's the destination, Jesus is the way. Throughout John's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He speaks the very words of God. He reveals God to people, being God incarnate. And Jesus is also the source of life. In John 3.36, we read, He who... He who has the Son has life, and whoever rejects the Son won't see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In chapter 11, Jesus describes himself as the resurrection and the life. And so it's true, Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the truth, and he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and this is an exclusive claim, isn't it? We can't know God, we can't approach God unless we come through Jesus. Uh, Throughout the Bible, God's revealed as being different to us. He's holy and he's just. He cannot tolerate sin. And yet in his uh, grace and in his, his wisdom, he's provided a way for people to know him as their God. He's provided Jesus as the means through which people can deal with their sin and be within his presence. John the Baptist described Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And apart from Jesus being our sin-bearing sacrifice, we'd still have our sin and, and God would not tolerate us. We wouldn't have a restored relationship with God. But because of Jesus being the Lamb of God who does take away our sins, we can enjoy life with a holy God who is the just King of heaven and earth. And so Jesus reminds Thomas that he is the way to God. In the next few verses, Philip puzzles over the connection between God the Father and Jesus. And Jesus points out that they ought to know that he and the Father are one. In verse 9, he says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Jesus is saying we can't, we can't separate him from God. And this section continues with Jesus pointing uh, to the miracles of evidence of who he is. If you don't believe me, he's saying even have a look at the miracles. They show uh, that I and the Father are one. And Jesus anticipates that the works that he's been doing Uh, will continue on as well after he's gone. And perhaps that's something we see in the book of Acts. Uh, Miraculous things continue to happen. And finally, Jesus challenges his people to ask for things in his name, ask for things according to his will, and they'll be given according to his will. But in these encouraging words from Jesus at the end of this uh, farewell discourse... Uh, we're left with the, the news that there is only one way to God. 
Christians have been described in the past as narrow-minded. Christians get called bigots. And a bigot is a person who's defined as someone who's obstinately and intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and their prejudices. I want to suggest that Christians aren't necessarily bigots. Uh, Christians can tolerate the opinions of others. As we tolerate others' opinions, we can still think they're wrong. And I'm going to give you an example. I'm not a member of the Flat Earth Society. And although I tolerate others believing that the Earth is flat, I just don't believe they're right in that assessment. Now, I know, if there's some of you who are in that space, you know, when you look out there, you can see it looks pretty flat. You know, when you look out at the ocean, it's, it's all looking pretty flat. And, and that's true, it does look, look that way. Um, but there are a few more things to know. And so I'm, I'm just not in that space right now. I haven't joined the Flat Earth Society. Now, I tolerate people who still believe the world is flat. Um, and I think it's funny. But I can still think they're wrong. I'm not saying they can't hold that opinion. And the same comes to a conversation about the way to God. Uh, we can tolerate people saying there's, there's other ways to God. You won't say they can't hold that opinion. They can. But we just don't think they're right on that topic. And furthermore, for those who say... Christians are bigots about there being one way to God, well, I want to say to them, I didn't say that. That's something that Jesus said. And their argument is with him. I'm just someone who believes him. I'll tolerate that other people think there's other ways to God, but I don't think they're right. I believe what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way. And friends, this is it. There is no other way. He is it. He's all we've got. If we want to enjoy life with a holy God, we need forgiveness of our sins, and that only comes through Jesus. Jesus is all we've got. He is the way, he is the truth, and he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Well, at the close of this sermon, I'd like to just summarise some of the things that I've said. Jesus wants to encourage his disciples as he comes to the end. And he encourages his disciples to leave a legacy, his legacy, that they'll be known by their love. He sets a high standard for love, doesn't he? He washed his disciples' feet and laid down his life. And he said, if we love, we're to love like him. And that will be a sign that we're his disciples. Secondly, Jesus understood how things would come to an end. Even that he'd be disowned by his disciple Peter, who spoke so boldly. But ultimately, he encourages us by the fact that he knew that and he was in control. 
uh, and we're still challenged to be those who follow him, take up our cross and follow Jesus and stand with him. Thirdly, as Jesus anticipated the end, he wanted to leave his uh, friends, his disciples, with hope in life beyond the grave. We don't need to be like those people in the story that I raised at the start of this sermon who, who uh, swam away and got eaten by sharks, who gave up their hope. They seem to have nothing to live for. But Jesus has given each one of us hope, hasn't he? Uh, he's prepared a place for us to be with him, uh, with the Lord at the end. And that's comforting for us as we think about our ultimate futures. It's comforting as we think about even our own funerals, that we'll be going to be with the Lord and each other. And so in that knowledge, we can pull together as um, God's loving church. We can pull together and encourage each other to persevere even through difficult times in a fallen world. We, we know uh, that we'll be there with the Lord together at the end. And finally, Jesus anticipates the end. He, he reinforces that there is only one way. If people want to come to enjoy life with God, he's the way. He's the truth and the life, and nobody comes to God apart from him. He's it. If we want forgiveness for our sins, he's all we've got, so we need him. And so, friends, as uh, we persevere as God's people both today and this week, uh, let me encourage you to keep trusting Jesus both uh, in this life and trust him as you face your deaths as well. Uh, let us close in a word of prayer and thank God for this time we've had to think about these things from his word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, um, we give you thanks for your work in, in our lives to call us to hear your word proclaimed today. Uh, we thank you for Jesus and his willingness uh, to lay down his life for us. We thank you that he was a, a sin-bearing sacrifice uh, that might bring forgiveness for our sins. Lord, we pray that as we live as your people, we'd rise to the challenge that Jesus has set before us today to love as he has loved us. Lord, we give you thanks that he was in control of all things. And Lord, we thank you that we can take comfort for that, from that. And Lord, we pray that as we live, um, we would remember... Uh, that we will go to be with you, that Jesus has prepared a place for us. And we thank you for that comforting knowledge and we pray that you'd help us to be encouraging and supportive of each other as we, we pass together through this difficult and fallen world. Lord, we thank you for Jesus that he is the way to you, that he is the, the one that we need to deal with our sins, to bring us into relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you that um, we can trust him to do that. Lord, we thank you for this time now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.